Falconers podcast. It's episode 21. Chase Thornton and Lester Mitchell with you tonight. Uh, uh, J-Law's doing a basketball game at Silicaga, and then, um, you know, we decided not to do a guest uh, for this show. But, um, Lester, what's going on, man? How you doing? Uh, same old, same old. Enjoying some uh, good basketball going on right now. Man, I'm telling you, that's where we're going to start tonight. And, you know, I, I know we haven't really we, – we've been putting football coaching hires over basketball, but, man, it, it's time to talk about this basketball team in depth. And, you know, they're 9-0 and in SEC play. They're just rolling. They beat Kentucky 70-59 to on Tuesday night and probably played the worst game they've played since they lost to Western Kentucky back in December. Um, and still won by 11. Great job shooting free throws down the stretch. Lester, we'll start with that game, man. This is a game, and we, you know, we've talked about this. It's been all over Twitter. It's no secret. This is a game that Alabama did not win in the past. You know, these tight games against these, you know, Kentucky's not a great team, but I mean, hell, you know, they signed six guys in the top 70 last year. So they're young, but the talent is definitely there. So, you know, they can catch fire at any time. You saw them do it. Um, against LSU last week when they when they upset them and so you know it, it was definitely possible I don't think Kentucky's a terrible team definitely not the Kentucky that we're used to seeing but you know when Alabama has a close game late we're not used to winning these things all of a sudden they are now just talk about what this team was different about this team so far halfway through SEC play everyone loves to talk about the offense but the defense and the mental makeup of this team is just it's, it's elite compared to the teams in the past. There were certain games you go to, and you look at the scores five minutes ago, games tied, things aren't necessarily going Alabama's way, and you just know. Like, there's just an eerie feeling, whether you're in Coleman or whether you're watching the game, that, you know, yeah, this isn't going to end well for us. But Oates has these guys that are making their free throws. They are playing elite defense, which is amazing. That is what's going to win you ball games when your shots aren't going, aren't falling like they weren't against Kentucky. When your shots aren't falling, your mental makeup and your defense and your free throws are going to save you and win you ball games. It's important. Yeah, and and that's something that we've talked about before. And uh, and it's a point that J-Law has brought up before on this show that it's easy to play defense and it's easy to guard whenever your shots are falling. I mean, your confidence is up, your energy level's up. It takes, you know, you really got to dig deep, you know, in order to play defense when you're not seeing the ball go through the net. And um, and that's something that, that we talked about earlier in this, that Alabama's just continued to do, and it was prevalent um, on Tuesday night against Kentucky. Like you were just saying, man, I mean, when it's not there, when you only make six threes after making twenty three just a week ago, I mean, goodness, it, it's it's it, it makes you you know everybody knows the saying you live by the three, you die by the three. Well, with this Alabama team, when you get a win like that, it shows people that that's not always true. Now, I'm not really sure if Alabama hits hit six three pointers. I'm not really sure how many teams they can beat in an SEC tournament or an NCAA tournament. You know, because Kentucky is not a tournament team this year, but it gives you the confidence that you can lock people down and it makes you continue to give effort whenever you're seeing results. Now, if 
you know, Kentucky was hitting everything. If they're guarding their ass off and Kentucky's just hitting everything they throw up, you know, it makes it a little bit more difficult. But hands and faces, um, you know, body on body, rebounding, everybody's crashing the boards, guards are in there. Um, Alabama, whether a small lineup, big lineup, whatever they have on the floor, you know, everybody's reading and reacting on the defensive end. And, yeah, it does take a lot whenever your shots are not falling. Um, but – Let's let's talk about something offensively. Uh, let's talk about something offensively, Lester. Like, you know, I, I was texting you guys during the game, and it seemed like through the first eight games of SEC play, Alabama did a really good job of offensive movement. Nate Oates has these quick hitter plays that he likes to run, but even when they don't run those sets, it seems like you know they might take a couple of seconds to get everybody in the right position. And then we go. There's been, there, there's been backdoor screens. There's, there's been a lot of movement around the arc. And it seemed like on Tuesday against Kentucky, I was really upset about this, especially early in the second half. I think Alabama had but like one field goal in the first like 10, 13 minutes of the second half. It was brutal. Um, the offense was very stagnant. Uh, there, there was, oh, it seemed to be some confusion, you know, looking over to the sidelines, trying to figure out where to line up. Um, and then, you know, it seems like, by, you know, by the time all that happens and they get situated, it's 15 seconds on the on the shot clock. And so now Alex Reese or Gary, whoever just runs up to the top of the key and tries to run a two-man pick-and-roll game with Herb Jones or Shaq, like there's Sharif Cooper. I mean, that's just not Alabama basketball. That's not what they've had success with. So why do you think that was? Could that be just a matter of injuries and maybe Bruner? not being there and other guys having to play their positions or, or what could, what contribute to that? Yeah, I think you're on the right track. Um, early in that game, you can tell what Kentucky's strategy was. As soon as Alabama crossed half court with the ball, they were waiting for them two or three feet before the three point line. They did not let Alabama walk up to that three point line look around, get set, or potentially pull up a shot. They were not going to allow Alabama to do that. And now that Bruner's out, your dominant man inside, there's no threat there. There's no threat of the guy inside. He can score or he can shoot a three. So Alabama was at a disadvantage um, missing Bruner in this game. Um, Kentucky they had a uh, some big guys, they're long. Like you said, six of the top 70 players. These guys, individually, they can ball as a team. They may not be great right now, but Kentucky's loaded. and They're a really, really good basketball team. So coming out, Kentucky had a great um, game plan. They were not going to let Alabama do what Alabama was comfortable with, which was coming up to the three-point line, looking around, running and gunning and setting themselves up to make a great play. Kentucky did not allow that, and yet, yet Alabama um, found a way to win. Uh, missing Bruner is huge. Uh, Keon Ambrose and uh, Reese, Gary, those no, guys, not, they, they, aren't, they, aren't, they, aren't, they aren't it. They're not it right now. No, so, not Ambrose, definitely, am I right? right. Uh, not yet, not yet. Still a freshman, <laughs> not yet. I love Ambrose, too, by the way, guys, so – but they're not there yet. So we're missing Bruner. We really, really are. And um, listen to a couple of media opportunities that Oates has had recently. It seems like he'll be back uh, sooner rather than later. So that'll be great. 
Yeah, he must have been in the uh, in the tent every day with Jeff Allen over there in the football complex because he's got those magic healing powers, how he gets the, the football team guys back so quickly. So he must have been hanging out over there. But, um, yeah, definitely. And, you know, uh, uh, alongside with the Bruner injury, um, Alabama, I really think Alex Chiku going down preseason really hurt Alabama because Alex Reese – I mean, nobody likes Alex Reese. I mean, the, I'm just going to be honest. Uh, he might have just maybe a hundred fans in the whole state of Alabama. I don't know anybody that likes Alex Reese. Yeah, he's good for one three a game, but it seems like if he hits that three within within his first three shots, that just gives him the green light to jack up six more that he's going to miss. So, I mean, he he has. I'll give I'll give him this. He has been giving effort. Okay. But he just doesn't have a lot of talent. He, he's he's not very agile for a big. I mean, you know, he's he, he's six nine, so he's not one of these seven seven foot one guys just kind of limbering around. But he doesn't have great feet for a six nine guy. And um, but I mean, he has been given effort, especially he's been banged up. So I appreciate what he's given to the team. But Alex Chuku was a guy with a lot of height, um, a French guy who, who, who's come who was coming in and. And uh, definitely going to be the probably you know the guy to back up Jordan Bruner at his position. So you know you have two six eleven guys right there rotating in and out. And um I, and I and I think his injury was just as big as Bruner's. Now of course we don't know how good Chiku would have been. He was highly rated, but we don't know if his game would have translated. God knows that Alabama's had plenty of highly rated players that are just complete ass when they step inside Coleman Coliseum. I don't know what it's been. But um, and so yeah, I think his injury was big. Lester, let me let me ask you this, man. You know, whenever Kentucky got the lead on Alabama in the second half, it didn't look great for Alabama. They couldn't throw it in the ocean. They were standing on the beach. Um, and there are a lot of negative tweets out there. I, I was sending some myself, and you have people out there talking about, you know. Why are so many Bama Hoops fans acting like this is the end of the world, blah, blah, blah? Let me ask you this, Lester. Is it fair? This team is now ranked ninth in the country. That's a top ten basketball team. Is it fair to criticize them whenever they're playing bad, even though they've been on this great run? It's not fair at all. Look, basketball, like baseball, it is hard to dominate day in and day out. It is it, it it's it's not like football. There's there's so many uneducated Bama fans out there. You you can't football the the sports are different. You can't dominate in football like you can in basketball or baseball. Look, you can assemble the greatest best you can you can assemble the greatest basketball team. You can assemble the greatest baseball team in the country, and you know what? They're going to lose because that's that's just the nature of the game. You're going to be off. Now, football is a little different, but they just got to enjoy the ride and calm down. I mean, I don't. I, it, it happens. You're going to lose. Alabama is going to. They are going to lose a, a basketball game, and it damn well might happen against. Oklahoma this Saturday, Kentucky might come back and beat them. The, oh, I mean, not Kentucky. LSU may come back and try to redeem themselves next Tuesday. People, it is frustrating seeing some of the commentary around this basketball team sometimes 
or Alabama sports in general, but it's unfair. It's unfair, um, especially when you don't know what you're talking about. So, you know, but it is what it is. That's the nature of social media. Everybody has a voice nowadays. You know, Lester, we haven't disagreed in a while, man, but I, I disagree, and it's to an extent. Let me let me throw that in there because I think there's different – I mean, there's everybody knows there's different ways you can lose a basketball game. Now, for me – if the shots just aren't falling, I mean, like we do, we talked about the Stanford they, when, during the Stanford game and the Clemson game and even the Western Kentucky game. We were getting good looks; they just they weren't going in for some reason. And and you know, and I can handle losing that way. And if that's the way you lose a game, then so be it. I will tip my hat to you. I won't say anything negative on Twitter. I might point out some stuff here or there. But all in all, I'm going to be okay with it. Now, what upset me is during the Kentucky game, like I was talking about earlier, the offense is standing around. There wasn't any movement. Kentucky was way too long to try to run a two-man game with Q, who's a five-foot-ten point guard who thinks he's playing street ball out there. And he's just he's driving in the lane. He's getting trapped. He's throwing it away. The stat line said he had three turnovers. That is so far off. There is no way in hell this guy had only three turnovers. I could have counted at least six or seven, and I wouldn't have been surprised if it was eight or nine. I mean, it seems like every time him and Keon Ellis tried to fast break the ball, they ended up turning it over. They were playing out of control. Kentucky really used their length to slow down Alabama defensively, and we didn't do anything player-wise or as a coaching staff to refute it and, and and we didn't do anything to try to combat what Kentucky was doing. Kentucky was trying to use their length. They were playing on the arc. And I mean gosh, in the first half they ran a couple of backdoor screens and they got wide up wide open layups. All of a sudden in the second half and really towards the end of the first half, they just start standing around and there's no movement on offense and it seems like nothing's being done on the sidelines. There's no change and there's no adjustment being made to what Kentucky was trying to do. And um and you know, yes, they were playing great defensively but if Alabama was to lose a game like that to Kentucky, who's five and nine, and they they lost it because they got stagnant on offense and kept turning the ball over with just silly turnovers, you know, as a player, especially as a ball handler, you've got to have a higher IQ when you're running the break. You've got to understand, hey, you know, these guys are long, they're athletic, they can run with me. I can't play out of control if I don't have numbers. Slow it up. You know, there was one time where John Petty had a two-on-one, and he tried to throw a lob. The guy just jumps up and grabs it. I'm like, come on, man. Like, you know, you, you don't you don't have – you know, there's just high IQ basketball players find a way, and they see the floor, and they understand when to pull it up and when to attack. Like Shaq, he's going to attack. Like, he, like he, he, will, he will put a shoulder into somebody's chest and just throw a windmill layup shot up and just pray to God he gets a whistle. And he actually does a lot of the time, which is truly amazing um, how out of control Shaq can play at certain times. But if you lose a game like that, I'm a lot more upset than if you lose a game where, you know, you just didn't hit your shots because I'm a shooter. I, I understand. I, I've had games when I played where – you know, it, it felt good coming off the wrist, off the fingertips. It looked good in the air. You had good rotation, just back iron. I mean, it's, that's going to happen. Um, then, you know, sometimes you have games where just everything's falling like the LSU game. So if you lose a game like that, so I, I, I agree and disagree, I guess, with your point. Um, I'd be okay with losing if 
you just get beat. If you're doing stupid stuff with the basketball and with silly turnovers and your offense is stagnant and it doesn't seem like there's any effort given on that side of the ball, then I'll have a problem with it. So, so yeah, I know I 100 percent agree with you. The the turnovers were insane, and to a degree, they were very uncharacteristic. It, just sloppy basketball. But um, so you so you are more upset of the lack of adjustments being made in the game, right? Yeah, yeah, on the offense, you know. I mean, like, I mean, I was texting you. I was like, move, somebody move, do something. It's like right. Reese and Shaq and even Petty and Herb are just looking over at Oates, and I'm like, dude, there's 18 seconds on the shot clock. Let's go. You know what I'm saying? And right. it's just, so, you're saying that, but that happened, that happened a lot. So Alabama had Kentucky and then before then Miss State. I thought Miss State was going to give us – they were going to give us fits. And they did. You know why? Because they had two dominant big men, and they slowed the game down. Kentucky, big, long team, and they sl- now slowing the game down doesn't, you know, uh, isn't that big of a bother. But we have dominant big dudes, or another team who are as long as you are. That. Those are the teams that are going to give Alabama fits. I thought Miss State was probably going to be an upset for Bama, but they were going to lose that game going into it. But they pulled it out. Um, anytime Bama faces a team, as long as Bruner's out, that has a good forward and center combo or a really, really good center, they're going to struggle. Because you know why? That center is going to be able to camp out. Bama's not gonna, the dribbling drive is not going to be open. And oh man, if that team has another long guard or something who can guard the perimeter a little bit, Bama's gonna struggle. They're gonna have to find a way. So far, they found a way here recently, but that's something to expect in the future. Now, like I said, I pointed out, you pointed out, that's something that Oates and his staff they're gonna have to get together and figure out how to combat that. Yeah, and it seems like you know every coach would have a. At least, you know, I mean, gosh, in college with as much practice time as you're allowed, at least eight to ten offensive sets that you can, that you run whenever a team is trying to slow the game down. Because, see, I believe if you're a head coach or you're a coordinator, you know, basketball or, or not, not basketball, but football or whatever the case may be, if you're a play caller, you know, offensive or defensive, and there's something that you like to do, I would, if it was me, I, I've never coached plays in a game, so I can't really tell you from experience. But it seems like to me, I would have something to combat against other teams trying to do stuff to throw my offense off. You see what I'm saying? Like everybody knows that Alabama likes to run the break; they like to shoot the three. So if you're Nate Oates, do you not have something else in your bag of tricks to where if they do some, if they play a style like Kentucky or Mississippi State did? You've got to have half court sets to get guys open looks or, you know, at least a lot of movement, you know, to keep the defense moving and, you know, back doors or double screen, whatever it is, down screens, up screens, you know, just whatever. It seems like Alabama just had none of that on Tuesday. But, you know, like, like I said, early in the first half and, uh, it, it did look like they got some really open, easy looks off of, you know, creative plays. And then for some reason, there's about a 15 minute period. You know, into the first half, into the second half, that they just they 
just didn't do anything, period, on offense. I don't know if they were trying to catch their breath or or what it was, but uh, it's definitely something that I would like to see Alabama implement, you know, in case they face a team. That, and, you know, and like everybody's got film. Everybody has seen now what Mississippi State and Kentucky did, and so everybody's going to try to emulate it. I mean, that that's what you do. That's what good coaches do. Like, you know, I've said for – for a couple of weeks now, like Sharif Cooper, he is the best player in the country off of the pick and roll. If you go man to man, he is going to go pick and roll and just absolutely murder you. He's going to have 20 something points. He's going to have 15 assists. He throws a lot. He sees the court so well when it's spaced out. Sharif Cooper faced zone against Arkansas. They blew a 19 point lead. It just completely screwed him up. Like, he wasn't used to seeing it. It was a high trap zone. He's a small guard. He couldn't really see. Arkansas had some big defenders out front, and it just completely screwed up their entire offensive game plan. But, you know, everybody else, like Missouri the other night was going man-to-man, he just murdered him. So, you know, I just don't understand. You know, you would think that coaches would try to adapt to that system that they see on film can slow you down. And uh, so, yeah, I hope Nate Oates has something in his back pocket to try to combat it. But Lester, last thing on basketball, and I want to bring this up. I told you I was going to bring this up. Herb Jones, I want to talk about the impact that he. Well, let, let me let me let you go first. Tell me about Herb and just what he's done with his improvement, even from last year to this year. Well, that was going to be my next point. First of all, the next couple games for Bama basketball, they don't matter. I don't care about them. This team needs to get healthy going into SEC SEC um, uh, tournament and the NCAA tournament. Sit Herb Jones for Houston, um, LSU, whatever you got to do to get that guy healthy. You know why? Because healthy Herb Jones is the most valuable player on this team. Not Petty, not Shaq, not Q, not Bruner. Herb can guard your one through five. He's almost a triple-double threat. That guy has improved his game tremendously from the day he stepped foot on campus. Um, his, he's, he's always been a great defender. He's always brought effort, toughness to the game. He's always had good vision. Um, he's been an okay ball handler, but Nate Oates has brought this guy to another level. The guy can shoot. The guy can score. He's he's like a point forward. He's almost like a mini LeBron. Can do everything. Can direct traffic. Can see over whoever's guarding him. Um, I I love I love Herb Jones. The guy can flat out ball. He is the key to this team. Defensively, he plays a key offensively. His toughness, it is incredibly important. He is the most valuable person on this team right now. He is. And I say that as, I say that because I want him healthy. His bad back, his wrist, his hip, whatever it is is aching him. Now I understand he's a, he's a bulldog. That guy wants to play. He wants to be there for his team. If he can walk, he'll play. I get it. But the regular season is not important. It's great to be, you know, ninth, whatever they are in the country. I don't, I don't even know. It doesn't matter. 
Um, it's great to be on the eight, nine game win streak. Cool. That's, you know, good to talk about. Good for Alabama Twitter account to throw graphics after the game. But we as fans have to expect greatness in the SC Championship and the SWA Championship. Nobody hangs banners for the regular season. No, well, I guess Alabama has a couple of COVID, but we <laughs> want an SEC championship. We want a Sweet 16, Elite 8, Final Four, National Championship. You have to be healthy going through that. You know, hey, things happen in-game, but things that you can rest for, you can rest a bad hip or a wrist. You can nurse a, a sore knee. This team got to get healthy. Herb, Rojas, Bruner, everybody get healthy because right now it's not important yeah and you know i mean to comment on that about sitting herb i mean yeah like you said herb's gonna play ain't no doubt in our minds about that but i I get what you're saying about you know you you want a team healthy you know once bruner gets back you don't want to get bruner back and then lose herb you know you don't want to replace one with the other um but at the same time i think alabama now I think you're playing for seeding. I think you are. And, and February has not been kind to Alabama basketball in the past. Um, I don't know if it's fatigue or whatever it is, um, but February has not been nice to Alabama. They've really struggled in the month of February right before tournament time. So um, this game against Oklahoma Saturday is huge uh, it's because, of, you know, they're a top 25 team. They just beat – the number five team in the country on the road. Um, they've also beaten Kansas this year, I believe. So they're playing really good basketball. Um, and I think, you know, with Alabama's schedule, they, they have nine more conference games. Four of them are in the bottom five of the SEC right now. Uh, and so the, the, the hardest part of their schedule is behind them. They still have Auburn and LSU left to play. Um, but I think that if you drop some games – Especially to somebody you're not supposed to, like a South Carolina or a Texas A&M or Vanderbilt. Um, you, you lose two out of those three, then all of a sudden you go from a potential one seed or a two seed. All of a sudden you're a three or a five. And I think that can make a lot of difference depending on what, you know, what part of the country, what bracket you're in and what side of the bracket you're in. And I think you could play a big role. So now I think you just got to keep playing. Um, just keep doing what you're doing and just pray that nobody, that nobody goes down, especially her. But, let me dig into Herb a little bit. Look, I, dude, I have been wrong so many times, and I have no problem with telling everybody I'm wrong. I was dead wrong on Herb Jones. Um, coming into the season, I knew we had a lot of shooters on the roster. And Lester, you remember I told you, I said, you know, I said, I'm worried that Herb's going to take shots away um, from our shooters. Uh, <laughs> and uh, because, you know, he, he's, he's always been an average finisher. At the rim. I mean, even early in the season, how many layups did he miss, Lester? I mean, it seemed like it was every other shot was at the rim, and he just miss it against nobody. And um, he still does it from time to time. But gosh, he's probably at least 80, 85, 90 percent around the rim now. It's rare. But um, I think it actually happened against two or Tuesday against Kentucky. Now that I think about it. But anyway, he's been he's done a lot better. His free throw percentage under Avery Johnson, his freshman and sophomore year, was 50 percent both years from the stripe. From the strike, 50%. Under Nate Oates, his junior and senior year, he was 63% his junior year and 79% this year. That's tremendous. Ups, uh, that's a tremendous improvement. His three-point percentage, same thing. 
Now he's never been he's never been one to shoot threes in volume, but his freshman and sophomore year he was 27 and 29 percent. His junior junior year he had the broken wrist, um, and so we'll just kind of throw that out. That's an outlier. And then this year he's 48 percent. Now, like I said, he's not shooting 10 per game, but even if you go one out of two, that that's impressive. I mean. But just because you don't have any rhythm, you haven't shot that shot all game, you haven't shot it since warm-ups, either before the game or, you know, before the second half started. And so that's that's really um, – it's, it's difficult to shoot no matter how many shots you're getting up. So he's almost 50% this year. It's just it's, – it's improvement that's not being talked about enough, I think, you know, around the Alabama fan base and even nationally. And I know Alabama basketball is not necessarily a – they're not the national brand of Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, all you know, North Carolina, all those teams. But what Herb Jones is, is doing improvement-wise is just it's, – it's, it's crazy. It, I mean, it's unbelievable. And you said earlier, he's always been an elite defender. So whenever he walked on campus, he was the best defender on the floor at any time. He's been that way for four years. Uh, I think he's gotten better about not fouling. Of course, you know, they do call ticky-tack fouls on him sometimes because he's all over guys. You know, they'll they'll flop or whatever. He'll get a cheap foul called on him. But ain't nothing he can do about that. That's just being aggressive. But every single category on offense has improved, even from last year. You know, whether it's it's ball handling. Like you said, he, he he's been an average ball handler. Now, he's not elite. But he is really good with the basketball. Hell, he's playing point guard for Alabama. His vision on the court offensively is better. His offensive IQ is better. Now, he's always had a good defensive IQ, but the offensive IQ had not really been there with Herb. He was kind of, you know, go to a spot. I'm going to go set a screen. I'm going to roll, and they'll throw it to me. I can catch it and dunk it, or, you know, I might drive it, try drive past this guy, whatever. His offensive IQ is so much better in so many ways. His passing ability is so much better. He had some passes against the zone against Kentucky. I think they were both to Juwan Gary. Just great looks, um, you know, from the free throw line to the block down there. Uh, his finishing at the rim, I, I mentioned that earlier. And then, you know, the last thing is his offensive leadership. You know, good gosh, it's like the ball stayed away from Herb Jones for the last three years. And like I said, his junior year is an outlier. He, he had a broken wrist and battled through it. But his first two years, he was not even close to being a focal point of the offense, right? So now this year, every single possession or almost every possession seems like starts with Herb Jones, whether it's a drive and dish, whether it's a come off a screen and dish or, or something. It seems like everything revolves around him. And how many times have we texted each other this year and been like, hey, Herb's got a mismatch. Just let him go by that guy. I mean, he, he's going by and dunking on people. He's just – everything is so much better. It's amazing at how he has proved me and a lot of other people wrong. And, yeah, there's, there's, there's been people that, you know, I love her, blah, blah, blah. But, hell, we've heard for four years that his shot is improving in the offseason. You know what I'm saying? And so we've heard, we've heard that for four years. This year it was legit. And uh, he's kind of – he's changed his shot. If you really watch Herb shoot um, – his freshman and sophomore year, he came straight up from his left pocket, right up through his left eye, and just, you know, had a high release or whatever. It was more wrist. And now, if you watch Shaq shoot, it's kind of like a, it's a half circle. He comes up from his right eye 
and releases kind of in between his eyes. And if you really watch Shaq shoot, it seems like Herb has adapted some of that shot and just the way he moves the ball, you know, from the chest up through the shooting motion, especially on free throws. And if it was something minor like that, that's great. That, and I don't know, I don't know if, if, if Oates saw it or Hodson or Petway or, or if Herb just, you know, asked Shaq to teach him how to shoot. I don't know. Whatever it was, it worked. And I'm really proud of Herb Jones and the player he's he's become, and the improvement that he's shown on the offensive side of the of the uh, of the court. I love it, man. <laughs> Guys, everything Chase Thornton said is true. I I don't know if Herb had a bad game. I'm not so sure Chase wouldn't be camping out of his house if he knew where he lived at. Um, put a baseball bat, but the guy is the guy is a damn good basketball player. Um, everybody, now one thing I was iffy on, everybody was saying, you know, Herb's an NBA guy. They've been saying that since the end of his first year. He's an NBA guy, he's an NBA guy, you know, scouts are looking at him, you know, yada, yada, whatever. And I was like, eh, probably not, maybe, but this year has solidified that for me. Um, wherever Herb goes, um, I hope he has, I, I'm pretty sure he'll have a good career in the NBA. And, um, Petty also. So, I I love Herb Jones. Glad to hear Chase loves him too. He's the linchpin for this team, and as Herb goes, I believe that we'll go too. So, yeah, and, and you know, speaking of an of an NBA slot for Herb, I mean, I think a lot of teams now can watch his film and see the de- that excuse me, see the development that he's made with his shot, and I think a lot of teams can carry on with that and they can continue that development. Um, because gosh, you see, especially bigs, and Herb's not necessarily a big. I mean, hell, he might be a shooting guard in the NBA at only six, seven. Those guys are massive, but you see a lot of bigs that didn't shoot in college, and then, you know, they play a couple years in the NBA, all of a sudden they're shooting 40% from deep. I mean, that's all they do is play basketball, and they have some of the best teachers in the world at that level. Um, but you know, they, uh, the scouts can see what he can do on the other, in the other areas of his game, whether it's the, the ball handling or the vision, the passing IQ, you know, we, we know the defense has been high. You know, he, he's nationally known for that. But when you really break down his film, I think hopefully the scouts will see that there is a lot of de- development that can be made there. And there's a lot of, a lot more improvement that can be made there, even though he's already improved greatly. But, um, Lester, Tennessee has a new head football coach. We'll slide over to the gridiron real quick. Um, Josh Heupel. Uh, coming over with, with, uh, athletic director, athletic director Danny White, who's hired from UCF. UCF hires a $120,000 search firm just to hire, or just for the athletic director to hire the, uh, the coach that, that he was previously, that was previously employed for him. So talk, just talk about what you think about this hire for Tennessee, where they're at right now. I'm sure this wasn't Tennessee's first choice. But with the chaos that is the University of Tennessee right now, it's probably about the best they could do. Tell me what you think about Josh Heupel and this hire at Tennessee. Uh, I guess I, if that's who they think that their guy is, by all means, hire that guy and put your faith in him uh, in your program. But for that guy to come out in a press conference and basically tell the fans on social media to – be nice to me, please. That just is just not a good look. 
for a program who is a national power, a national title contender or whatever those Hill people up in Tennessee like to tell you. Um, good luck. Uh, <laughs> if you want to know what a bad business is, it's probably a business where the guy hired a bunch of his friends to work there. <laughs> and I just, I don't know. The the hire seemed like an easy cop out for Danny White to make, but you know, hey, Hype was a good coach. He they've had a uh, uh, really good offenses. He's an offensive guy. You know, it, with everything going on in college football nowadays, you want an offensive guy, I guess. But from the time he inherited Scott Frost's program, he's had a worse record each year after that. So take with that what you want to believe in it, but. What Tennessee needed is a guy who's a builder, a guy who is organized, can build, can instruct a program. And based on the current news that's come out, somebody who will follow by the book. And we aren't sure that Heifel is that guy. Can he build a program from the gutter? Is, is he going to capitalize on what's there? I don't think so. If he couldn't continue to keep up UCF after after Scott Frost left, what makes um, Danny White or, hey, I'm with the Tennessee fan base. Why would a fan believe in this guy either? So personally, I, I, right here, right now, I don't think it's a good hire. We'll have to wait till he gets uh, a season or two under his belt and there's a good chance that he's going to be in the hot seat again in three years at Tennessee. Yeah, he he got a six year deal, which which is a little puzzling to me. But six, I guess it, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, uh, okay, cool. Making over over four million dollars a year too. Um, so it's crazy what they'll pay these coaches, man. And yeah, like you said, he he could be there two three years and be gone, but they'll own some money on the buyout, I'm sure. But um, I just the way I look at this for where Tennessee's at right now, you've got the NCAA can come down on you at any second. They're investigating everything about your football program right now. You've got 24 players in the transfer portal. Not too many of those are going to be coming back out. A lot of them have already committed to other schools. Um. It's a it's it's a crap crap show over there right now, uh, to to put it lightly. And so, you know, like I said, I'm sure they went after some bigger fish, but they said no, thank you. Um, so I think for where their program's at, I'm gonna say this is a pretty good hire. Now this guy's got a lot to figure out about the game of football. I think because. He runs an offense that's fast pay. They ran over 80 plays a game last year. That was number one in the country. So they ran more plays than anybody. But everybody knows you might score a lot. You might rack up a lot of yards. But as a result of that, your defense is going to be gassed. And they're also going to give up big plays. You're also going to give up a lot of points. So you're really counting on your offense just to outscore every single team that you play. And, yeah, I understand the fact that, you know, the program technically got worse um, after he took over for Scott Frost, but I think the first year he was twelve and two um, at UCF, and then I think like ten and three or something like that, maybe or whatever it was. Um, and then yeah, that's right. Uh, 
And then this past year, you know, six and four. But, you know, it's a COVID year. I don't know the situation with UCF's, if they had any COVID issues or whatever. I mean, Brian Harson at Boise State only played seven games. Um, they were only five and two. So, I mean, who's to say if they have to play, you know, three, three, four more games that they won't lose one or two of those and end up being six and four. So, I mean, he was 78% win percentage over three years. Um, and, you know, if you really, if you break down the schedule, even from last year, you'll see, I made some notes here, you know, they lost to Memphis 50 to 49 last year. In that game, they had 800 yards of offense and the game didn't go to overtime. 800 yards. They had 798 yards of total offense. Memphis was five out of five on fourth down and then scored 21 points in the fourth quarter. Why? Because UCS defense was gassed. They had nothing left. Um, you know, everybody, you know, they lost 36 to 33 to Cincinnati, um, who everybody knows Cincinnati went toe to toe with Georgia in the Sugar Bowl. Um, is it the Sugar? No. Whatever bowl that was, I'm sorry, I can't remember. Whatever bowl that was, and um, you know, I think Georgia beat them on a last-second field goal. But Georgia was a team that, towards the end of the year, once JT Daniels settled in at quarterback, everybody thought that they should have a shot at being in the playoff. Um, so you know, everybody thought Georgia's a really good team, and Cincinnati almost beat them. Well, UCF goes toe to toe with them. Um, same situation. Cincinnati scored 14 points in the fourth quarter. Uh, just because um, UCS defense was gas. So if this guy can adjust his offensive philosophy just a tad, um, he, he can't come into the SEC and try to run 80 plays a game. It's just not going to work. Um, because, number one, you don't have better athletes like you did at UCF than just about everybody you play. You, you, you know, you're, you're going to be lacking in the, in the talent department for a couple of years. Um, unless you're just an amazing recruiter and you go out and sign seven five stars, but that's not going to happen. Um, so I think if he can, if he can tweak his offensive scheme just a little bit, maybe tone that down to anywhere from 60 to 68 plays a game, that'd be about average. Um, you know, just trying to get his defense as much rest as possible. You can't go light speed. 90 to nothing offensive football in the SEC, um, especially if you're not having success. Like, you know, old, like Ole Miss was doing against Alabama last year, it worked because they were having success with it. And uh, so if it's having success, go ahead, man. But, um, you know, it, it's evident that, you know, he, he's cost himself some games because he tries to score too fast, so to speak, and he just wears his defense out. So, Tennessee, for, for for where they are, I give it a B a B higher. I mean, it's not anything. I, I think they definitely could have done worse, but I think nowadays you've got to go offensive minded coaches just because all the rules that are being made are going towards the offense. Um, you know, it, it, it just seems like it's becoming an offensive game. Even you know, like we said, Nick Saban has told us straight up that you know. You got to outscore people now. You don't really win games with defense, um, so you got to outscore everybody. And so I, I think it's smart for them to go with an offensive-minded guy. But I think if he's going to have any kind of success at Tennessee in the next three years, and when I say success, I mean getting to a bowl game. I think in the next two years would be a huge success, a huge coaching success at Tennessee. 
um, with, with what they have and what they're losing and with the investigation pending. Um, so, yeah, I think if you win 12, 13 games over the next two years, you know, that, that that's something that, that, that deserves an extension in my mind. But we'll see with this guy if he can tweak his scheme a little bit and find a good defensive coordinator. And then, you know, you got to recruit players without, without McDonald's bags. So I think if he can do that, he'll be okay. I'm glad you said that because you know that fan base is not going to be as nuanced as you are. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. It's going to be funny watching these guys go him and Harson. God bless them. I mean, seriously. God bless those guys based on, you know. Yeah, Lester, let me ask you a question. I mean, you know. Go for it. Well, the difference, like we were talking about, the difference between Harson. And, and Josh Heupel is, you know, I mean, Harson was 70%, 76% winning percentage at, at Boise State. He had his good years. He had his down years. I mean, Josh Heupel, the, you know, the difference is, is that Harson has coached longer. And so I think his winning percentage, you know, probably a little bit more accurate than Heupel's is. I'm sure if Heupel coached, you know, six, seven years at, at UCF that he might be a little bit below 76%. But, I mean, Harson's an offensive-minded guy. He's coming from a group of five powerhouse. Um, he took over a, a powerhouse school that Chris Peterson left. And, uh, you know, much like Scott Frost at UCF for, that he left for Heupel. And there's a lot of similarities here. I'm not saying they're the same coach and they're going to have the same success, but – they're coming into places where the roster is in, is a little disoriented. You got guys transferring in and out. Your recruiting classes aren't very good. Um, and so there's a lot of work to do. Now I think Auburn, Harson has a better shot at redeeming the program just because he's not getting investigated by the NCAA. But, um, he has a, he, I think he'll have more success than Heifel. But what I'm saying is on paper, them coming out, you know, there's a lot of similarities. Not saying that they're the same coach, but where the the programs they came from and their records, you know, there's a lot of similarities here between Josh Heifel and Brian Harson. Absolutely. A lot of similarities between those two. The most important thing for Harson and Heifel, they got to surround themselves with great coaches. I don't know if Harson has done that yet. Um, I guess Heifel just got the tenth. He's only been there for a hot minute, so I guess he's in the progress, in the process of hiring coaches himself. But the best mark of a great coach is hiring good people to be around you. Um, that's something that Saban said before. And right now, it's just going to be a wait and see between Harson um, and Heifel. They got to get the coordinators in. They got to get the guys who know the area. They got to get guys in who have been in the SEC, who already have these relationships, who are already established. But I'm not in charge, so we're just gonna have to see how those guys do it. Yeah, speaking of hiring guys with SEC coaching experience, let's move over to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where the Tide has hired Robert Gillespie. From North Carolina is running backs coach, and Jay Graham, a special teams and tight ends coach. Uh, we'll start with Gillespie. Um, he, he's coached at Tennessee, and, and he's been at North Carolina for the last few years. He's coached. He coached two 1,000 yard rushers just in the year 2020. He coached Alvin Kamara. Was able to develop him 
at Tennessee. Everybody knows he transferred from Alabama. Um, he was sitting behind Alty Tenpenny and Derrick Henry, so he transferred to Tennessee. And um, Robert Gillespie molded him into a tremendous running back. He's probably you know top two running backs in the NFL, along with Derrick Henry. Um, he's 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 known for his recruiting. He, he's a younger guy. He's only 41 years old, I believe. Uh, he played at Florida, so he knows the SEC game, and he knows, you know, he knows the recruiting trail. He knows a lot about the SEC. Lester, tell me what you think about this hire at running backs coach. I like it. The guy has a proven track record. Um, he knows how the game works in the SEC and big time uh, coaching and recruiting. Recruiting is so, so, so very important, and I'm glad that Bama filled their staff with another guy who can recruit after being rated by Sark. So, hey, I like the hire, and I think he's going to be really successful at Alabama. Go get the players. Go get go get the five stars that Saban pointed out on the board and bring them here. Yeah, that's true. Definitely always got to be recruiting. Um, ABC, like Michael Scott said, always be closing. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that a lot of people might look at this and they're like, why is this guy making a lateral move to Alabama? Unless I texted you this earlier. There's no such thing as a lateral move to Alabama um, because this guy could have been the running backs coach at North Carolina or Tennessee for that matter for another, let's say, five, six, seven years. Nobody was going to call him to be their offensive coordinator because that's the next step up, right? You're a position coach, and then your next step is coordinator, and then your next promotion is head coach. You know, most of the time at a smaller school, and then you you can possibly get another promotion to a head coach at a bigger school. That's how the coaching tree works. And so this guy's at North Carolina for the next seven years. I'm not sure how many phone calls he's going to get from teams and ADs asking him to come be a, a coordinator um, for, for their college football teams. Um, and so now he makes a, quote, lateral move to Alabama. Hey, in two or three years, this guy will be a coordinator somewhere. It might be at a smaller school, but he'll be able to get a promotion, and, and he'll be able to get a um, – you know, he'll be a coordinator somewhere. There is no such thing as a lateral move to Alabama. When you're moving to Alabama, it, it doesn't matter because just being under Nick Saban for two or three years is guaranteed to get you a promotion somewhere. I mean, you know, and, and right. I look at Jeff. I look at Jeff Banks as an example here because he made technically he did not make a lateral move to Texas. He's still going to be coaching special teams, but they added the title associate head coach, and so he gets a pay raise to right out a million dollars or whatever. Um, but I think if he stays at Alabama for another year or two, he's a coordinator somewhere. I'm not real sure that you'll see Jeff Banks hired as a coordinator in, in the next three years anywhere. Um, unless Sark wants to promote him, say Kyle Flood gets a head coaching job somewhere, and then he wants to promote Jeff Banks. I mean, we'll see. But Sark's still going to be calling the play, so it's not technically your offense. Um, so, you know, another example is, is Charles Huff. You know, he's... He's running backs coach at Penn State. He makes a lateral move to Mississippi State. He followed Joe Moorhead whenever he took that job in Miss State. Nobody was knocking down his door. Then he comes to Alabama and coaches for two years at running backs coach. Then all of a sudden, what? Boom. He's a head coach at Marshall. I mean, that that's huge. 
for the the development of that of, of that coach and, and you know it's it's where you want to be you want to move up the coaching tree and you're not going to do it at North Carolina or Tennessee or Penn State or Mississippi State but you come to Alabama and you do the same job and you and you're going to do you're guaranteed to do it well you got Brian Robinson Trey Sanders Jason McClellan you got Kamar Wheaton committed you've got Emmanuel Henderson that might commit in in mid March to Alabama who's their number one running back in the country for 2022 I mean you you're going to have studs you just signed the best recruiting class in recruiting history on the offensive line especially and and so you you cannot fail at Alabama, especially at a position like running backs coach. So you're guaranteed to get a promotion. And it's just it's just you know I think this is a good hire by Saban. I, I like what he's doing. Um, and, and and yeah, I think Robert Gillespie coaches for two or three years in Alabama, and then he moves up to a coordinator somewhere. The other coach, right. Jay Graham, uh, special teams and tight ends, Lester. Um, tell me what you think about him. I like it. I like it. Um, another guy who has been at several SEC schools, several of them, um, I guess you texted me, he's been at Tennessee, A&M, um, South Carolina, dipped his foot, dipped his feet in the uh, ACC conference. He was at uh, Florida State. Another good exceptional hire, a guy who's been around the block, who's been here, been there, done that, probably has a ton of connections all over the place. Another recruiter, and I'm pretty sure a guy who's probably a dang good coach too. So I like it. I like it. I trust anything that Nick Saban does. Yeah, he can really just copy and paste with Robert Gillespie and say the same thing about Jay Graham. He, he's leaving Tennessee. He's leaving that dumpster fire over there, and Nick Saban likes what he sees. He, he's been a running back. He's only coached special teams, I think, I think he coached him at Florida State for a year, and then way back maybe in the early 2010s, maybe like 2011, 2012, when he was at Miami, Ohio, I believe. can't remember what I read on that. But um, he's been primarily a running backs coach when he was at Tennessee and A&M and South Carolina. But he's going to slide over to special teams and tight ends for us. And here's another guy. Hey, three, four years, he's 45 years old. So I'm, I'm going to guess by the time he's 50, he'll be a coordinator somewhere. He'll, he'll he'll get his promotion. Then if he does well at that, he'll have the chance to become a head coach somewhere. So just another example of everything we said about Robert Gillespie, we can say about Jay Graham as well. Um, Lester, real quick before we get off of here, um, let, let's rate the coaching hires. You you can go A plus, A A minus. We'll do pluses and minuses. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a coach's name. You give me a rating a, a letter grade for him. And then I tell you mine. Let's start with Bill O'Brien, office coordinator. What grade do you give him? A minus. Damn it! Are you serious? Serious. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna have the same thing I am on every single one, aren't you? Oh. Uh, yeah, I got it written down right here, A minus. But yeah, go ahead and g- give me your reasoning. <laughs> well, I mean, once again, uh, a coach with NFL pedigree. He's been at the highest level. He knows what to look for in players who are aspiring to be at the highest level. So, you know, been in the NFL, had a great college track record. He's going to bring a lot of experience and hopefully um, should be a great offense with Bryce Young here at Alabama. I guess if you give the same grade I have written down, then I'll change it. So I'll just – I'll go B plus, And I guess – 
the knock on B.O.B. is is the fact that he hasn't been in the college game for a while. Kind of the same with Doug Marone, who we'll cover next. But um, there's been a lot of uh, decisions. You know, most of them are in the uh, you know in the front office whenever he was a GM with the Texans. But there's been a lot of uh, times where people have watched Bill O'Brien teams, especially offense, and said, "What the hell is this? What what the hell are they doing?" So, you know, I think it when he's coming in a lot like I was talking about with Robert Gillespie, it's hard to mess up. Uh, it, it's hard to mess up when you have this much talent. You're going to have more talent than every single team you play, maybe outside of Georgia, um, who you won't face until an SEC championship game. So, y- you know, I think he'll be good because, like I said, it's hard not to be. But he, he, he's got a lot to prove, and, and he's, he's following up the greatest offensive season in Alabama football history, um, and the offensive coordinator had a lot to do with that. He won the Broyles Award for a reason, and so B.O.B. Has, has, a lot to, has a lot to live up to, and he has a lot of expectations on him. Um, let's, just, let's go Doug Marone coming in from the Jaguars. He's going to be the offensive line coach. Grade this higher for me. I'll go B. I'll go B for sure. Because he is, it's just more of an unknown with him. The offensive line at Alabama has been a strong point under Kyle Flood. And no matter who's the O-line coach, um, I'm just going to go with B. Just going to go with the wait-and-see approach. I do not want to drop off on the offensive line. Games are won in the trenches, and... With the talent that this guy is inheriting, it's all on him. There's no reason there should be a drop-off. So if it is, it's on that guy. But, hey, once again, another NFL guy, another guy who knows his business, who's saving the one that brought him in for no reason. So I have faith in him, but I'm going to give him a B for right now. Yeah, I'll go. Same as uh, same as Bill O'Brien. I'll give him a B plus. And, and it's because of the fact that he hasn't had to recruit since I think uh, 2011, gosh, don't quote me on that. The last time he was at, in college, which I believe was Syracuse. But um, you know, it, it's really easy to recruit to the University of Alabama. Nick Saban is, you know, the best closer recruiting-wise in college football history. So when you got him backing you, it's pretty easy to recruit, and the program's going to sell itself by now because it's basically, you know, do you want to ring or not? Um, you know, and so, like he told Devin White when he went to LSU, he said, we're just going to have to beat you every year. And he did. He, he didn't lie to him. But, um, yeah, I'll give Doug Marone a, a B plus because X's and O's wise, I think he can be very, very good. Once again, he's going to coach a lot of talent. He's going to have more talent than just about every, every defensive line that he plays. And so hopefully him and Bill O'Brien can work together. Um, and, 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 you know, there won't be any issues there. You never really know with these egos, with the egos of these NFL head coaches. Um, you know, they think they're the end all be all. And, and so it would be really interesting to see how they work together. I hope they gel right. Um, but yeah, I'll give them a B plus because like you said, there are a lot of unknowns and there's a lot to prove there. Uh, Robert Gillespie, running backs coach. We just talked about him. Lester, what grade do you get this higher? B plus. B plus. Once again, this is a guy who's more knowledgeable of the college game. He's been more recent than O'Brien and Marone. Um, and then once again, inheriting greatness. 
hopefully that guy can, like I said, continue to recruit, continue to bring in the guys, continue to coach up the guys already on the roster. So I'm giving him a B plus. And I tell you what, I ain't gonna lie to you. This is my favorite one. Uh, I, I, I'm giving this higher an A plus, and the reason is, is he's a young dude. Um, he played in the SEC. He's coached in the SEC. The guy just had two 1,000 yard rushers in the same season, and that's in the spread era college football. They also have a great quarterback in Sam Howell up there at North Carolina. So if Mac Brown likes what he sees in you. And Nick Saban does, man, I am all in on this guy. And also, I think that this is a good move by Saban because he is 41. There's a lot of teams that are hesitant to hire a, even a coordinator nowadays under 45 years old. You know, there's a lot of risk, even though, you know, Sark is, is 45 years old. And he's a, a head coach at one of the premier football programs in America now. But, um, with Gillespie being only 41, I, I, I'm hoping that we can get at least three years out of him. And, uh, you know, of course, you never know. He could be snatched up next year by somebody just because he's a a saving guy or whatever. But I like this. I love this hire right here. He, he has coached some studs. He's recruited some studs um, when he was at Tennessee and North Carolina. And he's going to do a great job in the recruiting trail. He's going to do a great job of teaching the kids. And he's young, and he can relate to them a lot better than some of the other assistants can. Um, last one, Lester, Jay Graham, special teams tight end coach. We just talked about him once again. Give me a grade on this guy. I give him a B. I give him a B. Once again, special teams. There's three cases of football, offense, defense, special teams. Special teams are important, people. They are. You may not, you may not like, like watching field goals or punting or, Whatever, but they are important. Once again, it's on this guy to recruit and to continue to develop Reichert, uh, whoever's punting the ball, and produce a decent special teams unit that doesn't lose its football games. So once again, we're going to wait and see. Because look, 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 I'm not giving these guys great grades because we've seen this before. We've seen staffs at Alabama oh, they are the greatest recruiters, but can't coach on the field worth a flip. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. Saban has seen that before, and I'm sure he's not bound to repeat that same you know situation again. But I'm going to be cautiously optimistic, but I'm sure those guys are going to be great for Alabama. Yeah, I'll give Jay an A-. minus. And it's really because of a lot of things that I said about Robert Gillespie. I'm not going to repeat them. Uh, he's a he's a proven recruiter. He's 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 been around the SEC. He knows the league. He knows the area. And um, it's going to be easier for him to recruit at Alabama than it was to other places because that, that, that and that's a big thing. If you're known as a good recruiter at Florida State and Texas A&M and South Carolina and Tennessee and North Carolina, um, that's good because at Alabama. What are these guys going to be whenever, you know, because it's good. You know, those those teams that I listed, they have good programs, but they don't sniff what Alabama's been able to do the last decade. So when you have the program that's selling itself and a program that's constantly upgrading facilities and nutritional centers and weight rooms and all this stuff, and it's just 
it's just it really sells itself. And then whenever you add a good recruiter on top of that, then now you're an elite recruiter, just like, you know, Charles Huff was and like Carl Scott is and, and Jeff Banks. And so, you know, I, I think as, as, as far as the mix or the the young recruiters like you were talking about, I think you've got a really good mix. I think Gillespie has has shown his uh, you know, I think his track record shows that he is very capable of coaching good running backs. The stats speak for themselves, um, and uh, and I think you have a good mix. You know, you got Sal Sinceri, who's a good recruiter and also a good coach. You got Carl Scott, who coaches DBs. That's a good you know a good coach. And then you you got guys like Bill O'Brien, who might not be a top-notch recruiter. I mean, you remember Sark really didn't go and get that many guys. He wasn't really in on a lot of guys. Um, and that might be because the coordinators in Alabama were so temporary. Temporary. Um, you know, maybe Saban didn't want to put him on a, as the lead recruiter for a lot of guys because Golding, Golding was. He went out and got a bunch of dudes. But, um, you know, I don't think Bill O'Brien will have to recruit that much. I think he'll just have to he'll, – he'll focus more on X's and O's and maybe Marone – as well, but uh, so I think you've got a really good mix of schemers, X's and O dudes, and then recruiters, and then some that can do both. So I think it's a really good staff Nick Saban's put together. Um, I give the whole staff an A. Um, really good job. Alabama staff is complete. So now they're looking forward to the spring of 2021, getting these guys in the weight room. They're already in. I got the early enrollees in. Um, Lester, we I know we covered a lot of stuff, man. I tell you what. An hour and five minutes is a lot for two people to talk. It's a long podcast for just two people. So you got anything you want to add before we get out of here? Yes, one quick thing. Um, regarding the coordinators, I don't know if you saw this story, but when Charles Huff, he went to Marshall, right, for the head coaching gig. He went to Marshall. Um, yes. I read a story recently where Nick Saban called – the governor of West Virginia called some board members at Marshall, basically made five or six calls on that guy's behalf. And you know why he did that? Probably because Charles Huff came in and did things the right way at Alabama. You talk about, you know, making the lateral move. That's one reason why if you make the move to Alabama, that's just another reason why it's not a lateral move. Unless you're going to be an asshole like Dan Enos or or Kiffin. Do you think Saban would ever stick his neck out for those guys ever? Or Kirby or any other no. coaches who, who've left like that? Just no. ditched them? No. Um, that, was, that was a really, really good story. Um, I don't know how anybody could find it, but Saban stuck his neck out and made five or six calls. And got that do the head coaching job, and I really, really love that. And yeah, and, and like you said, that's re- that's a direct result of him coming in, doing things right, being a good coach, being a good recruiter, not arguing with anything Nick Saban says because I mean he is the boss. He probably never had any backlash. And then whenever teams started calling, whenever his phone started ringing, I'm sure he went straight to Nick Saban. And he said, "Look, man, you you are the greatest football coach of all time." You are the greatest college football coach in the history of college football. Tell me what I need to do. And he went to him right. for advice. Instead right. of telling him, instead of busting in his office like Jeff Banks didn't say, hey, Sark wants me at Texas. I'm leaving tonight. 
he sat down with Saban. He's like, I need advice on what I need to do. And Nick Saban's like, look, this is a good opportunity for you. I think that you've done enough here and you need to move on. And yeah, like you said, I'm sure he called some people up in West Virginia and, uh, and helped him get hired. And that's just, it's just a direct result. Nick Saban is going to tell you like it is, whether you're a player or a coach. If he doesn't think you're ready for the draft when you're a junior, he's going to tell you, look, man, you're going to benefit by coming back, playing your senior year. Your draft will go up. Look at Devonta Smith. Look at Jonathan Allen. Guys that listen to him and that are smart and, you know, they, they, they did what he said and they came back and they were first rounders. And you got dumbasses like Mac Wilson and Ronnie Harrison who are good players in the NFL. But if they'd have come back for their senior season, they could have been first round draft picks, man. I mean, they could have made millions of more dollars than they are. I mean, granted, they'll probably be millionaires anyway by the time, you know, it's all said and done. But still at the time, those that listen to him and those that are smart enough to, to do what he says, most of the time they're going to benefit. You know, I think another example is Pete Golding. I'm 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 sure Pete Golding probably was ready for a change of scenery. Uh, he wanted probably wanted to go to, to Texas with Sark. Um, you know, a different challenge in the Big Twelve. They're known for not playing defense. There's less pressure because you're not expected to stop anybody in the Big Twelve. And Nick Saban said, "Look, dude," he said, "you can go there and you can be a defensive coordinator for the rest of your life." Or you can be my DC for another one or two years, and you'll probably get a head coaching job somewhere. And so Golding sat down with him. He he weighed his options, and he thought it's in in his best interest to stay. And so yeah, yeah, that's that's a great example with Charles Huff. Um, we definitely wish him the best. And you know, we can sit here and say that, like you know, we're pulling for Charles Huff for the rest of his career. I'll be a Charles Huff fan. I can't say the same for Sark. You know what I'm saying? Well said. Well said, my guy. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Sark will be fine, but it's just, you know, it, it's hard to root for somebody that goes and just and just takes your entire coaching staff. But anyway, yeah, long podcast. Thank you guys for listening to all of it. Um, we appreciate you listening, every, you know, week in, week out. Um, if you're a new listener, you know, we appreciate you stopping by and checking us out. Um, Chase Thornton, Lester Mitchell, episode 21, Gumpurners Podcast. We're out of here. <laughs>